Stonehenge, Into the Light, Part 2 of 5, Overcoming. Hello, I'm Mark Zaretti and this is the audiobook version of this feature-length documentary. This story continues in the morning, sat down for breakfast in the campervan at Stonehenge campsite, 15th of November 2022. Good morning. So, I'm just sorting out breakfast. It's a particularly wet and wild day today. And um, yesterday we were at Stonehenge. The plan for today, I've just been checking the map on my phone, is to go up to um, Avebury. I've also been looking at the weather and it doesn't look good. But we will not be deterred. I wasn't going to say anything about this really. This isn't something I intended to discuss in this documentary, but I think it is highly relevant. I film on a GoPro, just a really simple, easy to use camera. Practically bomb-proof. I mean, these things get attached to motorbikes and BMXs and thrown down the side of mountains. They're waterproof, they're drop-proof, and there's really just one button. Start recording, stop recording. And I've used the GoPro I have for quite some time, kept in very good condition, and I know it well. And I have a very basic audio recording device. Yesterday I started introducing some rather unsavoury characters. The leader, original druids, and the ones on high dimensions that they're all aligned with. And I also talked about things like black magic, and the use of black magic to allow these characters to move between dimensions. Maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves in this documentary, but it's relevant and I'll, I'll mention it now. This still goes on to this day. Now what I found is when I talk to camera, I've done a lot, a lot of videos and I've done a lot of pub public presentation and it, it comes easy. I normally know what I want to say and it comes out without lots of pausing and kind of brain fog. Now, when I arrived at Stonehenge yesterday, in the morning it was nice and clear, there was no one there and it was very misty but beautiful. So here I am at Stonehenge, I've arrived quite early and you can just see it there in the background and it's a very misty day. I had to wait till 9.30 till the park opens and then I moved my van round to the public, kind of the main car park, paid my money and came in with the camera equipment. From that moment forwards, I really, really struggled. It was like there was some kind of a, an oppressive presence or force trying to give me brain fog. And so I, I really had to um, kind of keep going back to my notes, which is not like me at all. When I look back at the footage, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I, the, the stuff I said is all relevant, but the, the way I was talking was very kind of staccato and very suppressed. But what really clinched it for me was that I actually had to stop recording. And I said yesterday that I left the park because there were too many people and I wanted to take a step back and be more free to speak. That's true, but there was another reason. The camera itself was just locking up. It was not behaving, it wouldn't stop recording, it wouldn't start recording. When, when I had stopped it, it, I couldn't start it again. I changed the batteries, I switched it off, reset it. It was like it was being interfered with and the word interference in the work I do this comes up a lot and it, it's a way of referring to when a person or an object is being messed with by things unseen and you could label it as magic or spells or pulls or hexes or black magic or any of these things but really it just means that in some way something intangible something that we can't necessarily understand on the physical 
is being done to mess with said person or object. So I left Stonehenge, came back to the van, and in the peace and quiet of my van, I was able to, in the same way I get information that I'm sharing with you in this documentary, I was able to find out what had been done and remove these blocks and these, let's just, let's just call them curses upon the equipment. And then the GoPro started working fine. And since I've been here, I've noticed, I mean, some, the lights in the van will start flashing, inexplicably, and things like this. I was out walking the dog in the, in the night, because I sometimes like to, you know, just before going to bed, give the dog a walk and stretch both of our legs. And I heard something whoosh over my head. Probably only two or three metres above, but it, it didn't sound like a drone, it didn't sound like a craft that I recognised, it didn't sound like an animal, it had a very unusual, almost electrical sound to it. Now I've got no idea what it was, I couldn't see anything, it was a clear night sky, I've never experienced that before. There's definitely something going on here, whatever it is, it seems to be that they do not want this video to be made, which just spurs me on even more, so whether the weather is seemingly against us or whether there are forces seemingly against us, I am at absolutely devoted to speaking the truth and I will not be stopped from speaking the truth. I know some of this maybe sounds completely <laughs> crazy, you know, if I'd heard myself speaking these things or someone else say, talking like this years ago, I probably would have dis dismissed them as a whack and I think that's partly how we've been conditioned to think about people that speak up about things that are maybe not mainstream, is we're too quick perhaps to label them as either a wacko or a conspiracy theorist. But if you'd walked the journey that I've walked over the last 20 plus years, you'd probably be sitting in this seat saying the same things that I am. We need to open our minds. We need to, maybe mind isn't the right word actually there, but we need to be more conscious and perhaps less reactive. But it's in that stillness of observing rather than reacting in terms of intellect and habit and thought and prejudice and all of these things but it's in that stillness where we can have an inquiry into the nature of things so the plan for today is we're going to go up to Avebury and we're going to look at the stones there which I can tell you now is going to be it's quite interesting why they're there what their purpose was and it ties in with Stonehenge as I said and as you've seen on my sat nav the plan was indeed to head straight to Avebury as time was limited but as I left the campsite, though it was still raining, I saw this amazing rainbow. Ignoring the weather forecast, which was the non-stop rain, I followed my intuition and instead of heading to Avebury, I went in the other direction, back to Stonehenge. Though it was very cold, sure enough, as I arrived, the sun broke through the clouds, providing an unexpected chance to share with you what the rain had prevented the day before. Okay, we've had a fortunate break in the weather, so I've returned to Stonehenge and you can just see it, it's way off in the distance there. It's actually less than half a kilometre, but it gives you an idea of how small it really is in the grand scheme of things. Why? After 700 years of using the year clock to organise and coordinate their biannual meetings with the leader, why did the Druids then place these megalithic stones in the ground? What had changed? Well, in order to answer this, you need to understand that the council on the third dimension, these 12 Druids that govern different lands and would congregate here twice a year was part of a much bigger chain of command in fact it's the these 12 were the lowest rung of the ladder there is another council of 12 on a much higher dimension and even higher up than them is another council of 12 and above them a third council of 12 so this was the lowest of four rungs and above all of them 
is the leader. Affairs on Earth had evolved quite considerably. There was much more interest in humanity as things were evolving and in the, in the third dimension. And so the leader was increasingly having to give his attention on higher dimensions to govern things there as well. And with this chain of command, although the third dimension and humanity were the primary focus of his manipulation and control, he needed to delegate. Now, with the exception of Pan and one or two others, who he really trusted because they were either directly in his bloodline or had proven their loyalty. He didn't want to give the technology that he used on himself and allow Pan to use to those others. This technology that he used allowed him in person without the aid of craft or anything via black magic to come down via these interdimensional tunnels. That's extremely powerful technology so he wasn't about to hand it over to people that he didn't trust so well. So he said to his generals and those that were going to start governing the third dimension in his stead, if you're going to go down there, you'll do it my way. You're not going to have this personal technology, you're going to use craft. And he turned to those three races who were represented by some of the druids down here, who were the extremely technologically advanced ones, having also been involved with Atlantis. And he leveraged his alliance with them to gain access to their flying craft technology. And so it's actually the craft that were used to escape from the destruction of Atlantis circa 12,000 BC that were actually employed to bring his delegates down to this site so that they could run the biannual meetings and help govern the third dimension with the Druid Council. So what we're looking at when we look at Stonehenge is actually an interdimensional airport. And the stones were necessary infrastructure to support the arrival and departure of these interdimensional craft. So how did they construct this? This is one of the biggest points of speculation. Did they drag these 26 tonne stones on rollers across undulating fields and through woods? It seems far-fetched really. Now this stone part of the construction was done about 9000 BC, much earlier than actually is believed when you go through the uh, tourist place and they show you the, the timelines, Stonehenge seems much, much younger than that. Therefore, at 9,000 years BC, it predates the pyramids, it predates the Sacsayhuaman stone walls and all the other megalithic structures. And what we're actually looking at is the precursor to all of those structures. The technology that they used to cut these stones and move these stones would go on to be used to do the Egyptian pyramids, among other things. And remember, it's the same druids, the same races involved, who were in Atlantis, who lent their technology to provide the craft to come down to Stonehenge, who would then go on to establish the Egyptian pyramids. So there is this connection between all of these different myths, legends, and things that are physically tangible. The technology they actually used were these devices, which they would attach to a rock, and then once they activated it, it would cause it to vibrate and shift in vibration until it levitated. And then it could just be pushed along. But in order to activate them, it required a lot of energy and not the kind of energy that you would normally find in nature. And so they used black magic to draw down really dark and evil energy from higher dimensions, as well as to produce it there and focus it into these devices. And so just as the interdimensional tunnels were technology-based, they were also black magic-based. 
And when we talk about black magic, what we're really talking about is just very, very evil and dark. And this is really why a lot of the lore and legend of magic associated with Stonehenge should really be approached with caution. Because all magic ultimately is an attempt to interfere with or go against nature. So there weren't hordes of horses and men and rollers and all of these things. It was very, very simple. But before they could move these boulders, they had to cut them. They didn't just find all of these perfectly rectangular boulders. And when you look closely at these rocks, they've got tongue and groove joints. They've got pegs, they've got holes. All of these features were hewn from the rock using another device. It was similar technology. Again, it worked on sound vibrations. You had this device that you attached to a hard stone. Carve this hard stone in the usual way using hand tools to make a sharp blade. And then you would attach this resonating device to it and it would cause it to vibrate. And those vibrations would allow it to cut through stone almost as easy as a knife through butter. And so that's how they were able to shape all these stones with ease. And then once they'd cut them, they could then levitate them and just push them along to arrive at their destination. And this is exactly how the Egyptian pyramids were built. With the Egyptian pyramids, they were traveling over sand a lot of the time, so they had to pour water down to solidify the sand. But it was really quite straightforward. Now to us, this seems like ridiculously advanced technology, but life on higher dimensions is ancient. And so they were doing this 12,000 years, 14,000 years BC in Atlantis. And this is why we can't understand or we speculate that they carved these rocks using bronze tools and dragged them across the ground. I don't know which is more far-fetched. The idea that there might be more to life than just this and that there may be ancient technologies, which are after all depicted in petroglyphs and hieroglyphs across the world, or that somehow people managed to drag these rocks tens or hundreds of miles using just brawn and rough rope, you decide. So why have they built the infrastructure the way it is? You have a circle of sarsen stones, and then within that you have the trilithons, which are the taller sarsen stones, with the caps across the top. The sarsen stone circle itself had the capstones as well. Now these two parts are the key infrastructure to do with bringing in the craft and allowing the craft to leave. But they also still needed a way of tracking the day so that they knew when the meetings would be. And at this point, with these big stones in place, the Aubrey holes and the Y and Z holes and posts were quite outdated and harder to spot because of all these other stone structures. And so what they then put in place was the blue stones to act as the markers for the year clock. They'd upgraded their system. They then started using the north and south barrows as elevated posts from which they could act as sentries to make sure that no one was in the stone circle when it needed to be used and also to get a better view because once they'd elevated the, the site using stones, they needed to have points of elevation from which they could perceive with ease. So why this open horseshoe, open into alignment with the heel stone, and then the surrounding ring, which is slightly lower. It doesn't make sense when you look at it from the ground, but imagine coming in on a craft down the avenue in the direct line with the heel stone into the horseshoe. The horseshoe is elevated, and it's to do with the trajectory of the craft. These craft didn't drop down, they came in because they came from higher dimensions, swung around as they dropped in vibration and then came on a very specific trajectory as they exited the wormhole 
over the heel stone and into the horseshoe. And so they had to be able to fly over the outer ring of stones and come into the horseshoe to rest, which is why the outer stones are lower than the horseshoe. But there's something really important that we need to understand. If you bring energy from a higher dimension down to the third dimension, it's dangerous. It's a much higher vibration, it's much more kind of potent. It's not meant to be here. Now we experience that kind of energy occasionally and it is basically radiation, although often it's made by using technology on the third dimension to release energy that is not meant to be experienced on the third dimension and that's when we have very kind of harmful forms of radiation. But when, they, when these craft come down, they're using high dimensional energy. Just as the black magic that the druids were using to draw down on godly energy. Now not all higher dimension energy is bad, the, there's a lot of good, but it's not meant to be down here, you're not meant to bring that energy down. In the case of the craft though, the energy they were using was bad as well, so it's even worse. And so when the craft arrived, it would bring with it almost like an aura of higher dimensional energy and it would also be using ungodly energy as its form of propulsion. And this explains why we have the outer ring of stones. That is a protective shield to protect the druids who are waiting for the arrival of the leader or the leader's envoy from this radiation. Under the guidance of the leader, they had imbued that outer ring with black magic to form a domed perimeter of energy lines made out of dark energy. And what that did is it contained all of that radiation. If they hadn't done that, they would have been burnt, much like someone that say has been out in the sun for too long and they literally get sunburnt. As an aside, you may want to ponder why is it that if we evolved supposedly on this planet, under that sun, why does it burn us if we get exposed to it too much? That's worth considering. But that's way beyond the scope of this particular documentary, but I will be explaining it in the book. But coming back to this, the outer ring is a protective field so that the radiation of the craft does not leak out and harm the druids and anyone else there, all of whom were bad, but they still don't want to harm them because they were in alliance with the people coming down. Now once the craft was down, eventually it would have to leave. Just as landing uses less energy than taking off in an airplane, it needed a lot of energy to get from the third dimension off the ground and back to the higher dimensions. And this is the reason for the inner horseshoe. It's not just there to kind of act as a marker for where to land. It was also imbued with dark magic and energy grids around it so that it could be used by the occupants of the craft when they were ready to leave. They would get back into their craft when it was time to go and they would invoke powerful dark magic to draw down demonic ungodly energy from a massive reserve that they had created on higher dimensions. And this energy would stream into this horseshoe and be contained by the field set up by these energy grids. And the craft would draw in to power itself so that it could then leave and return to the higher dimensions. Now this is really ungodly energy, very nasty stuff. And the stones would contain it and when the craft had gone, any residual radiation, any residual ungodly energy would be absorbed into the stones and into the ground, and most of it would eventually dissipate. But this is one of the reasons, what we've got to understand is these races that were here to manipulate humanity, to control humanity, subdue us, to keep us in the dark, they weren't good. But all of this bad energy that would accumulate 
partly through their black magic and through the arrival of the craft, was actually nourishing to them because they themselves were bad. What they were doing was bad. So for them, the kind of residual energy that would permeate the ground and radiate outwards was actually supportive. The negativity made them feel good. And this is one of the reasons why there's this idea about the healing properties of Stonehenge. At each solstice, the leader would send lots of dark energy down to Stonehenge because he knew that his servants, those that he was controlling, those who were doing his work would gather there. And this energy, it was like just, just how you feel when perhaps you go on holiday and you buy a waterfall and it's like, oh, this is beautiful and uplifting. For them, being dark, this outpouring of dark energy upon that place was healing and cathartic. And the healing for them was real because those who have turned away from the light cannot be healed by the light, but they could get nourishment and feel revitalized and their bodies, which are the lowest part of them, would also benefit. This reservoir of ungodly energy on high dimensions was actually managed and maintained by one of the higher councils because they were collaborating with what was happening on a third dimension. So they would know that there were craft coming, they would know when to build up the energy reserves to allow this kind of interdimensional transportation. Now just to give you an idea of how different these craft are to what we're familiar with, like flying aeroplanes and helicopters and balloons and stuff like this. To get from the higher dimension where they left and to arrive here was about a two minute journey. And it's really understandable why people might think of these things as UFOs. I'm going to talk about how the, their propulsion systems actually worked and how they jumped between dimensions. But they were disc shaped. The archetypal original idea of a UFO was a saucer or a disc. But they were not UFOs. They were interdimensional craft coming from Earth on a higher dimension to Earth on a lower dimension. The, the idea that we are one of many, many planets floating through space, being visited by UFOs from other planets and other galaxies and other systems, has been deliberately encouraged and propagated to hide the truth. These aren't visitors from another planet. These are visitors from this planet. But if people understood that, if people knew about higher dimensions, then they would start to inquire in that way and the truth would become known. But the leader and his councils do not want humanity to know the truth. So to cover up any awareness of these craft, the idea that these craft come from other planets has been propagated. The UFO ideology is a huge distraction. They're not visitors from another planet. But if everyone's looking out across the heavens to other planets, and no one's looking up at what's happening on this planet, then we'll all stay in the dark. And so this is why the UFO arena, which is fascinating, is becoming so mainstream and so, if you like, it's another hoax, it's another smoke and mirrors. So going back 9000 BC, interdimensional craft from higher dimensions of Earth started landing here, bringing envoys of the leader to teach, lead and guide the council on the third dimension. So why were they saucer-shaped? This is all to do with the form of interdimensional shifting they used. 
Within each of these craft, in the very center, was a vortex generator. And what energy vortexes do, which is very similar if you know anything about energy systems in your own body, if you know about chakras, they take energy from higher vibrations and they slow it down to drop it in vibration or they can speed it up to raise it in vibration. So on higher dimensions, they would activate the downward vortex and take off. Rapidly, they would drop in vibration and as they arrived at Stonehenge, they would have shifted the vibration of the craft and the occupants to what I call pseudo-physical. They would be at the same vibration, for example, as this fan, but they wouldn't be permanently physical. It would be a temporary sort of physicality. But it was enough that they could interact with the people on the third dimension and interact with the environment around them. And when they were ready to go, they would flick the vortex to the upward vortex and that would rapidly raise the vibration of them and the craft they were in, shifting them. And at the same time, they would take off and leave. And by the time they were over the heel stone and out of sight, they would have disappeared anyway because they would no longer be visible because they had shifted out of the third dimension's range and they'd arc back round and return to their higher plane. <laughs> it's, it, it's unbelievable and yet this is what has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. So the reason why the craft is saucer shaped is because the outer rim of the vortex is a circle emanating from this central point. So if you have a central point and you draw a circle around it, you have a saucer or a dish shaped. And the field wasn't flat and therefore the shape of the craft was to mirror the shape of the vortex. That way all of the craft is within the vortex and everything gets shifted. Thank you for listening to this documentary. If you'd like to discover more, please visit thewaybackgroup.org.